the early part of the fourth century, there was a Roman emperor called Diocletian who hated Christianity and persecuted the church. In the year 310, he ordered the production of a memorial coin to saturate the empire with the message, the name of Christianity being extinguished all around his pretty little head. So he was declaring in that his own man-made mission to destroy the church and take his stand against their God. On another occasion, when he had extended the empire um, of Rome West into Spain, he set up a monument there saying, Diocletian, for having extended the Roman Empire in the East and the West, and for having abolished the superstition of Christ and extinguished the name of Christians who brought the Republic to ruin. Take a look around. <laughs> Did he succeed? And I don't think the name of Jesus is extinguished or, well, the Roman Empire in itself is in ruin. He didn't succeed. He didn't achieve his targets. Um, but he is an example for us of the kind of hatred and enmity that people have against the Lord God and his people, Christians. Enmity against God and those who follow him can occur at lots of different levels. It can occur at a national level, uh, like with Diocletian. Even today, governments can prohibit the Christian faith in places like North Korea and many others. Enmity can also occur at the societal level with organizations like, even that we know, the, the Secular Humanist Society, many being vociferous in their hostility towards Christianity and their desire to, well, extinguish it. But enmity with God can also occur at a personal level. Uh, all of our hearts, as the Bible teaches, before we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, are hostile towards him. There's no kind of moral neutrality in that statement. We are at enmity with him. But it begs the question, what happens when people are like this toward God and his people? If you like, in this rebellion and the anger that's behind that rebellion, what, how does God feel about those who shake their fists at God? What happens when people deny him and try and stand against him? What would God say to such people? Well, I think Psalm 2 helps us a lot. Psalm 2 really tells us. And it's neatly divided up into four sections in which we will hear four voices speak tonight. And the first is this. Number one, verses one to three. The world says, I rebel. The world says, I rebel. What is this rebellion? Well, when you read through verses one to three, the voice that you hear is one of total defiance and it's a, voice that is, is, uh, it's a voice that belongs to the nations and the rulers. So these are these ruling representative governments and rulers over a people representative of a people. And they are saying, we rebel. We don't need you, God. We don't like your agenda for our lives or the agenda for this world. And we're given a glimpse, really, into the various people who are caught up into this rebellion and their actions, too. So even you have in verse 2, people plot as well. Uh, or Sorry, verse 1. People plot in verse 1, which tells us that 
actually some of the people who operate under these governments and under these rulers aren't really coerced into rebellion. They too think about it and choose to rebel. Then in the first part of uh, verse 2, kings are taking a stand, which seems to suggest they're not, uh, they not only want to break free from the rule of God, but they want to go one step further and oppose him, actually object to his rule. And the second part of verse 2, of course, the rulers taking a collective stand by gathering together, which tells us that the problem of rebelling against God is not some occasional occurrence in the odd individual. It's a widespread problem. It's a global issue. And it's everyone's problem, really. It's not just the political powers of the world that have no desire to be ruled by God. Um, it is most people. Rebellion is this inborn tendency to give in to the lies of, I suppose, autonomy, self-sufficiency, self-focus. These three things are all behind the kind of the enmity, you know, that, that hatred toward God's. Autonomy the, auto the person who has, wants autonomy for themselves says, I have the right to do what I want and when I want to do it. Those who struggle with self-sufficiency will say, well, I have everything I need in myself, so I don't need to depend on or submit to anyone. The self-focused individual will say, I'm the center of my world. It's right for me to live for myself and do only what brings me happiness. That's all that counts. But this rebel spirit affects every single one of us. And it affects the way that we approach our lives. So we want control and hate being controlled. People want to make up rules and change them whenever it suits them. Essentially, people want to be their own gods. And no matter what else, people can be rebelling against that rebellion is ultimately directed at God. So rebels are like the people in verse 3, which is, just provides a great illustration of what rebellious people think of God's instruction and His rule. Let us throw off their chains, their fetters. You ever think like that? Do you ever allow your mind to think through what life would be like for you if you were not under God's instruction? Do you feel like God is the proverbial party pooper? Well, don't be deceived. Or should I say, don't be tempted. Because by saying to God, let me break free from your fetters, you're effectively saying, let me be free to commit all kinds of sin. I don't want to feel the effects of guilt and shame in doing so. Let me be free to set my own agenda and be my own God's. And the strangest thing in all of this is that we think that by being free from God's instruction, we'll be free to do with whatever we want. But that's not really true. Our hearts and our addictions and the things that we strive for show us that we're always enslaved to something. So how does God respond to those who say, I rebel? Well, the second point, the Lord says, I rebuke, in verses 4 to 6. Um, don't rush by verse 4 without noticing two important things which expand our understanding of the Lord's response in here. The Lord is pictured as one who is enthroned in heaven, the one enthroned, it says. He's sitting on his throne. It tells us that God is not 
threatened by this human opposition, even if it's made by the collective might of a government or a nation or a collection of nations. He doesn't hide behind his heavenly throne weighing whether or not he's got enough might to stand in the face of this rebellion. No, he doesn't even rise from where he's sitting. God is on his throne. He is enthroned. But the one enthroned in heaven, what is he doing? He's laughing. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. Now, it's such a ridiculous thing for puny humanity to pull on the gloves and get in the ring with God. It reminds me of toy fights I used to have with my brothers when I was younger. They are both older than me by six and eight years old. And they were far bigger. They had longer arms. I was tiny. I had no chance. Um, And if you saw my brother in one of those fights just holding me off with the one hand with me swinging aimlessly, hitting air the whole time, you would see this is just ridiculous. Why is this little kid trying to fight against this big guy? Well, in a sense, that's what we see in this throne room of heaven. It's as if God is saying, look, I made these guys, and now they're climbing into the ring with me? Goodness. And as we read in verse 1, even though the people plot, it is in vain. It's a fruitless plotting. Now, it's important to notice something about the fact that God is laughing here. When you see God laugh, don't think for a second that the Lord is, in a sense, delighting in the rebuke that he gives as he demonstrates his power. Ezekiel 33 says, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. His laughing here again is almost this, I mentioned this before a couple of weeks ago, this anthropomorphic language, this man using man's language to explain something about God that is difficult to explain. That's why he uses, yes, like that. Anyway, after that, what does the Lord do? After the Lord laughs, he speaks. He speaks. He didn't need to get up from his throne, and he doesn't need to do anything except speak to strike down this rebellion. And this is what we see in verses 5 and 6. The utterance of his mouth is enough to rebuke and to terrify those who are rebelling. What does he say? He says, despite your rebellion, despite your plotting, despite your collective strength, O man, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Spurgeon says, isn't that a grand exclamation? God says that he has already done that which the enemy seeks to prevent. God is always and everywhere outworking his plan, declaring and maintaining forever his sovereignty. But here's the big question that has been tucked away, I suppose, until now. Who is this king installed by God's own decree? Who is the son in verses 7 to 9 who pipes up and speaks? This is point three. The son says, I reign. In verses seven to nine, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you're my son. Today I've become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Well, who is this 
son. Who is God's son here? Uh, now, we know that David is the author of this psalm. Is it, is it David? Well, it could be that it it could be in that the king of Israel was regarded as, as, if you like, the small s son of God, endowed with authority from the Lord. But there are other parts of this psalm which would make that conclusion difficult to settle on. For example, no king of Israel was ever told by the Lord that the ends of the earth would be their specific possession, as it says in verse 8. Well, as Martin highlighted for us, this psalm points forward to King David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who faces opposition and rebellion is the true son of God, the Messiah. And we know this because in the New Testament, Christ is the subject of Psalm 2. He's the lens through which the Spirit of God enabled the church to understand and apply Psalm 2 in lots of different places, including Psalm thir- uh, uh, including Acts 13, as we read earlier, and Acts chapter 4 as well in verses 25 to 26. As the people are praying to God there, we hear them quoting Psalm 2 and applying it to Jesus. They prayed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with all the Gentiles and all the people of this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. See them picking up the language of Psalm 2 and applying it in that context to Jesus. Or again, in Revelation where Psalm 2 is quoted. John is describing what he sees Jesus doing in Revelation 19, where we have Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, coming to bring salvation to those who took refuge in him and wrath to those who rebel against his authority. Verse 15 says, Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with the iron scepter. So if the Son of God in this psalm is Jesus... And he rules by God's sovereign decree. What does that mean for us? If all of the plotting against him is ultimately in vain, what does that mean for governments? What does it mean for groups within society? What does it mean for people who don't know Jesus and who personally rebel against God? Maybe that's you here tonight. Well, it means that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him, and we owe him the highest worship and obedience. That even if we do conspire to do a Diocletian and extinguish the name of Jesus from this world, it is an impossible endeavor, for his name will be lifted up forever and ever and ever and ever. And his name will not be extinguished. Not ever, not ever, not ever, not ever. He is the son of God who rules. What does it mean for those who then rebel against him? Well, it means exactly what Revelation 19 would say. Some of the language, of course, is here in Psalm 2 as well. That rebels face wrath. That's it stated in the bluntest of terms. Rebels face wrath. Rebels face God's judgment, God's anger. And in verse 9, the psalmist provides, of of Psalm 2, we're provided with this illustration to show what it will be like for those who come under his judgment. You'll be like pottery smashed. Even the great might of a collection of nations gathered 
mounting themselves up in, in, in rebellion against God's authority will find themselves broken like a vase that you knocked over on your way out the house. Dashed to pieces. Doesn't really sound like super glue is going to solve that problem. Dashed to pieces. You can't rebel against God's rule and stand against God in rage and not emerge from the ring unscathed. As I said earlier, that our rebellion against God, even if it's not, in our view, directed straight towards him, is still indirectly disobedience and rebellion against his authority. The picture here isn't one where the pottery's chipped or cracked. It is dashed to pieces beyond repair. Now, Revelation 6 says, I watched as he, the lamb, opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky recedes like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks and the mountain. They called on to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for who can stand their wrath on that great day? If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, can I say in the most straightforward but humble terms what the Bible says? The Bible says, it is graphic, right? It's that passage that I read there from Revelation says, it's better, you, it's a, you would want to die under an avalanche of jagged rocks rather than face the wrath of God. That would be preferable we face God without salvation through his son. That's how serious this rebellion is. Like I said earlier, there is no, there is no neutral ground here. Well, if the son says, I reign, and his wrath is so real and so serious, even as we await it one day in the future, what hope is there? Well, the psalmist tells us in this final section in verses 10 to 12. Fourthly, the psalmist speaks. The psalmist says, I recommend. So here's the good counsel that we have from the psalmist. First, he says, verse 10, therefore, you kings, be wise. I recommend that you be wise. Don't be so foolish to take this warning and ignore it. Don't be so foolish to think that you can take on God and win. Don't be so foolish to think that we can live in opposition and enmity towards God and emerge unscathed, without judgment, and without wrath. God has said that that cannot be. Don't be so foolish to think that we can rebel against God's rule 
and get away with it. No, the psalmist then says, I warn against that, be wise. Think about this. And then he says, I recommend that you serve him with joyful submission. Serve the Lord with fear. Celebrate his rule with trembling. In other words, serve him. Submit to him. Be subservient to him. Recognize that his rule and his authority is not to be the proverbial party pooper, but to give you greater joy than you could have ever hoped or imagined. For true joy and true delight is found in walking in his ways. True delight is found in knowing him, knowing that that's enough. True delight is reflecting on all the joys and the benefits of looking forward to the new heaven and new earth where we will be with him forever. And be without sin and suffering. Submit to him. And the psalmist ends by recommending that we, people who don't know him, repent. That's why he says, kiss the son or he will be angry. And your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. The recommendation here at the end by the psalmist is repent, kiss the son. The image here is of a ruler extending a hand with the sovereign mark of his kingship in a ring on his hand. Extending that hand for a kiss. And that kiss being one of humble submission. And the encouragement for all of us is to recognize that the son that was spoken about in the third section, the son who says, I reign, the son of whom it is said, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill, is Jesus. And the way we kiss this son with subservience and affection is to believe in his name. It's to love him, not rebel against him. It's to love the one who went to a cross to rescue us from our rebellion. It's the one who humbled himself, laying aside the rights and privileges of heaven to come into this world to be a man that he might live a sinless life, a life of sinless perfection that would qualify him to be our substitute where he would die on the cross in our place for all of our rebellion. For all of the times that we've shaken our fist at God or been dismissive of his instruction and commands in preference for autonomy, for self-sufficiency, for self-focus. He died to take all of that away. So that everyone who believes in Jesus, who trusts in his blood for their forgiveness and for their entry into eternal life, that passing through judgment, they will be saved. For Jesus rose three days later to declare that he was alive forevermore. That, God's, that his sacrifice on the cross three days before was accepted by God and all who share 
all who trust in him can share in his inheritance by faith. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you've been rebelling against God, you've not been walking in his ways. God says he sent his son in love for you. But Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. The call is to trust Christ. Believe in him and you'll be saved. And brothers and sisters, we must not be in any doubt whatsoever of the necessity of our mission. We are living in a city where so, so many people do not believe in Jesus and do not love him. People who would happily live without them, self-governing their own lives. We live in a world where there are innumerable nations and governments happily living in rebelling against heavenly instruction, preferring man-centered wisdom. Pray for such governments. Pray for the nations so that the gospel may go out to them. The good news for all of us who were once rebels, like me, the good news for all of us is that when we come to kiss the hands, we see that these are the hands that were pierced by nails when Jesus was crucified in our place. And we find in those marks and in the remembrance of that cross such joy and such happiness. And then we recognize that we have safe passage through this wrath. Safe passage through this revelation judgment that is to come. As it says at the end of verse 12, the very end of this psalm, blessed are all who take refuge in him. May we who have taken refuge enjoy that tonight. And may you, if you have not yet taken refuge, come and do so tonight. Pray to him. Let's bow our heads.